Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I'm going to just do a talk and read some information into this episode. The title of this episode is Rudolph Rommel, Democide in the United States of America. And it's just a name that's come to my attention recently, considering all that's happened with the rollout of the kill shot. I think that looking into the work of Rudolph Rommel is very important. He coined the word democide which is when governments actively are engaged in murdering their own citizens. And his research is really remarkable and well worth looking into his books. I have his website, so you'll see uh, on this, you can click on the website. I'll put a link to his website, which is still up, so you can see all the research and things that he wrote about. And I'm just going to read a little bit from his Wikipedia and then uh, read from one of his books, the intro, and then kind of go into what he wrote about Stalin's uh, reign of terror, really, when they uh, purged, just kept purging and purging his own people over and over again. And uh, during, was it 1936 to 1938, before World War II started? But I think it's interesting. He was also a critic of Obama. Uh, he thought that Obama was trying to put together a one-party state, which was a really bad idea. And he contrasted totalitarian states with de democratic states. He said that having functioning democracies uh, where actual votes count and things like that were uh, prevented the kind of totalitarianism that led to murders and mass murder. And so he actually traced, I think, um, governments for the last 200 years and found that democracies, because democracies function with the rule of law, the way they treat potential adversaries, they go through the same process. So it's not a totalitarian answer to problems, but a much more measured uh, step by uh, because of just the nature of the, the government itself and its dealings with other governments is much more rational and, and not prone to as, to as much violence. But uh, yeah, Rudolf Rommel is a, a name that people should know. So I'll just read a little bit here. Rudolf Joseph Rommel, born 1932, died 2014. He was an American political scientist and professor at the Indiana University, Yale University, and University of Hawaii. He spent his career studying data on collective violence and war with a view toward helping their resolution or elimination. Contrasting genocide, Rommel coined the term democide for murder by government, such as the genocide of indigenous peoples and colonialism, Nazi Germany, the Stalinist purges, Mao Zedong's cultural revolution, and other authoritarian, totalitarian, or undemocratic regimes, coming to the conclusion that democratic, democratic regimes result in the least democides. Rommel estimated that a total of 212 million people were killed by all governments during the 20th century, of which 148 million were killed by communist governments from 1917 to 1987. To give some perspective on these numbers, Rommel stated that all domestic and foreign wars during the 20th century killed in combat around 41 million. His figures for communist governments have been criticized for the methodology which he used to arrive at them, and they have been also criticized for being higher than the figures which have been given by, by most scholars. In his last book, Rommel increased his estimate to over 272 million innocent non-combatant civilians who were murdered by their own governments during the 20th century. Rommel stated that his 272 million death estimate was his lower, more prudent figure, stating it could be over 400 million. 
He came to the conclusion that a democracy is the form of government which is least likely to kill its citizens because democracies do not tend to wage wars against each other. This latest view is a concept which was further developed by Rommel known as the democratic peace theory. He was the author of 24 scholarly books and he published his major results between 1975 and 1981 in Understanding Conflict and War. He spent the next, next 15 years refining the theory under underlying theory and testing it empirically on new data against the empirical results of others and on case studies. He summed up his research in Power Kills, 1997. His other works include Lethal Politics, Soviet Genocides and Mass Murders, 1917 to 1987, China's Bloody Century, Genocide and Mass Murder since 1900, Democide, Nazi Genocide and Mass Murder, 1992, Death by Government, Genocide and Mass Murder since 1900, and Statistics of Democide, 1997. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and he coined the term democide, which he defined as the murder of any person or people by a government, including genocide, politicide, and mass murder. He further stated the use of civic civil definition of murder, where someone can be guilty of murder if they are responsible in a reckless and wanton way for the loss of life, as in incarcerating people in camps where they may soon die of malnutrition, unattended disease, and forced labor, or deporting them into wastelands where they may die rapidly from exposure and disease. In his work and research, Rommel distinguished between colonial, democratic, and authoritarian and totalitarian regimes and found a correlation with authoritarianism and totalitarianism, which he considered to be a significant causative factor in democides. He posited that there is a relation between political power and democide. Political mass murder grows increasingly common as political power becomes unconstrained. At the other end of the scale where power is diffused, checked, and balanced, political violence is a rarity. For Rommel, the more power a regime has, the more likely people will be killed. This is a major major reason for promoting freedom. He wrote that concentrated political power is the most dangerous thing on earth. This correlation is considered by Rommel to be more important than reliability of estimates. So he talked about the democratic peace theory. Um, he also included famine and democide. And... Uh, yeah, the democratic peace theory is probably another whole another show. He said here, Rommel was critical of Barack Obama and the Democratic Party, alleging that they were seeking to establish an authoritarian one-party state. He believed that global warming was a scam for power, it is, and opposed Obama's carbon trading scheme. He should, because it's a scam. Rommel thought that Obama killed off a democratic peace that De Democrat Bill Clinton and Republican George W. Bush have been pursuing. Rommel posited that there was a leftist bias in some parts of the academic world that selectively focused on problems in nations with high political and economic freedom and ignored much worse problems in other nations. Related to this, he also criticized the tenure system. So pretty interesting guy, tons of books. You can actually get links to the books. Power Kills Democracy is a Method for Nonviolence. I looked at some of the books on Amazon, and they're pretty expensive, but you can get copies of some of these. Um, and this is his website. It's still up, and you can just see kind of all the things that he has on here. Lots of links, uh, personal stuff, mega murders, photos about democide, his own bio, and uh, pretty interesting, pretty interesting guy. So you see a lot of the stuff. You get links to a lot of his research as a historian. So let me see if I can do this. 
Um, let me go back to this. Let me pull this out. Yeah, so I think it's uh, well worth considering everything that's happened with this shot rollout. I think it's important. It really is the standard. Mass murder by your government really is the standard. I mean, it's had, or the, a government. Um, it really is unfortunate to think of it that way, but I think it's it's really it's really true. So this is kind of one thing I found: democide, Nazi genocide, and mass murder. This is 1992. The intro says, "Truth always strange, stranger than fiction." It's true. It's from Byron. So I'm going to read the preface. I think it's important. It's from him. This book is part of a comprehensive effort begun in 1986 to determine how much genocide and mass murder, what I call democide, have occurred in this century and why. From 1984 to 1985, I did a preliminary and very limited assessment of democide, arriving at a total of 119 million people killed by government, now seen as underestimating the toll by possibly as much as half again. In 1988, I received a grant from the United States Institute of Peace to do a more detailed work on democide and to further test the theory that democracies were the least violent of all political systems. I found this true for international and domestic war, and in the preliminary study, I found this true as well for democide. The proposed study also would thoroughly test this theory against comparative democide statistics. If the theory continues to hold true, then the conclusion would be inescapable that democracy is not only a method of governance stressing individual freedom and rights, but also an effective method of nonviolence and conflict resolution. That is, within the limitations of any predictions based on the past, democracy would be a path to a warless and least violent world. The idea was to collect statistics and contextual material on democide and write them up as chapters for a projected monograph, one country or case of democide at a time. Once I completed the case studies, I would aggregate their statistics, analyze them, and draw conclusions. The research started with what I call the mega murderers, those political regimes that have killed at least one million of their own people in cold blood. The first of these was the Armenian genocide by the Turkish government during World War I. After I completed research on this, the statistics and description of the genocide were easy to contain in one chapter. However, when I finished research on the next case, the Soviet Union since 1917, the essential estimates, calculations, and contextual material were just too much to include in one chapter. The Soviets had committed an incredible democide of 61 million citizens and foreigners. And for the reader to understand this, I had put it all into one book, Lethal Politics, Soviet Genocide and Mass Murder Since 1917. The same thing was true of the material I collected on the Chinese warlord, nationalist, and communist democide of the 53 million people. Another book, China's Bloody Century, Genocide and Mass Murder, since 1900. When I turned to Nazi Germany, I was sure that since Nazi genocide and mass murder were so well known and researched that I would easily be able to confine the essential material on this democide to a chapter. It didn't work out that way, as this book attests. The appendix and its table of estimates, calculations, and sources alone turned out to be longer by far than any appendix tables included in the books on Soviet or Chinese democide. Also, making sufficient sense of the different kinds of genocide and other forms of democide for the interested reader still demanded more space than that available in a chapter, even though the many popular historical descriptive 
and fictional accounts of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust made much background unnecessary. So again, another book. There's another reason for putting this material into a book. Regardless of all the work done on the Nazi period in Germany, the histories, the studies of Nazi aggression and occupation policies and terror during World War II and the Holocaust, I know of no systematic accounting of the total number that the Nazis killed in cold blood. There are many studies, of course, that try to determine the toll among Jews, and there are some that do the same for gypsies, Poles, homosexuals, or concentration camp prisoners. But these have yet to be totaled together. To include, for example, hostages shot, reprisal murders, forced labor dead, or those starved to death in intentional famines. The closest to this is Bodan Widowicki's Other Holocaust, The Many Circles of Hell. He pulls together mortality statistics on the number of Jews, Gypsies, Poles, Bielorussians, Ukrainians, and Soviet prisoners to arrive at a figure of 15.5 million to 16,300,000 lost. This figure alone is already huge, even though it omits other groups killed, including French, Dutch, Greeks, Serbs, and even Germans themselves. Here, Witowicki's study extended to include all the circles of hell. We would find that probably 20 million or 21 million people were murdered by the Nazis. Chapter 1 provides an executive summary of this killing. In the following three chapters, I briefly sketch the well-known and documented Jewish Holocaust, treat more fully the less heard-of genocide of the Slavs, and outline the least-known genocides of the gypsies and homosexuals. In Chapter 5, I cover the Nazis' euthanasia program, killing of critics or opponents, politicide, and mass murder and reprisals in occupied countries. These substantive chapters describe the who of Nazi democide. The next two chapters look at two Nazi institutions through which much of this killing was carried out, the concentration and death camp system and the massive slave labor program. The two concluding chapters try to help in understanding all this murder, particularly the how and why. Finally, I present all the estimates, calculations, and sources in an appendix. The methods and perspective on the statistics are the same here as my previous books on democide, as described in their methodological appendices. Since I presented that in both books, I saw no need to repeat them here. I should, however, similar, similarly qualify the Nazi totals. No one knows or can give the pre precise democide figure. Probably even that for the Jewish Holocaust is wrong. Experts who have painfully sifted through the Nazi archives, extensively interviewed survivors, and taken detailed depositions of witnesses have been unable to agree among themselves on the final total. In this thoroughly documented and comprehensive work, Raoul Hilberg concluded that 5,100,000 Jews died based on her detailed country-by-country -country analysis. Lucy DeWittowitz arrived at a figure of 5,933,000 annihilated. Gerald Reitlinger calculated the toll at 4.2 million to 4.5 million Jews. Taking all such studies into account, and making his own calculations for his Atlas of the Holocaust, Martin Gilbert arrived at a total of just over 5.75 million deaths. In the, the latest such work, the appendix to Encyclopedia of the Holocaust, Israel Gutman and Robert Rosette estimated total losses from about 5.5 to 5.8 million. Just among these five thorough studies of the available evidence and statistics, the variation from the lowest to the highest figure is 41%. This is for a genocide carefully administered by a regime that was better than most about keeping records and statistics, 
whose surviving archives and secrets were completely available after the Nazi defeat, and about which there has been, for nearly half a century, many historians dedicated to uncovering the truth. If then the estimate of the Jewish Holocaust can vary so much, we should hardly expect to get the true figure on other genocides or mass murder, nor, of course, the overall democide. The statistical problem is clear, if not easily resolvable. It is how to determine within some range of error the most likely Nazi democide, given different published estimates, different kinds of killing, different events, and different time periods. The approach has to be one of reasonable approximation. This involves, involves successively narrowing the range of estimates to what a hypothetical reasonable analyst would arrive at from the available information, and then defining within this range a prudent figure that somewhat reflects the central thrust of the statistics and historical events. So this is basically just kind of going through all the things. The various chapters describing the genocides and mass murder are not meant to be historically comprehensive in detail or outline. Much literature is already available on these events. In these chapters, I only intend to provide sufficient detail and coverage for the general reader to understand the how, what, and why of such a statistic, such a statistic as 10,500,000 Slavs murdered, and provide some examples of the killing that contributes to such totals. So that's kind of just kind of an intro. Just gives you an idea of the amount of, you know, statistics that are left out on the killings. Like, oh, there was just a war and this many people died in the war. But oftentimes they're overlooking the people worked to death, starved to death, et cetera, et cetera. So then one thing I think that's important to go through is, is these... Uh, Stalin's Great Terror. Terror. Robert Conquest wrote a book about, I think, considered to be one of the best books about the Red Terror from 1936 to 38. And um, I think it stood the test of time. Some people have critiqued it, but I think that it's still considered to be the go-to book to read about, uh, about what Stalin did, which is really shocking. That's a story that a lot of people don't like to talk about. And a lot of the left covers up these types of crimes and uh, horrible things that happened. So I'm going to read just this chapter. And uh, I think it's very telling. Maybe I'll go into the Mao chapter too. But this is from Ending War, Democide. And uh, this is from, let's see, a lot of books here. It's the Ending War, Democide, Famine, and Through Democratic Freedom. This was published 2005. You see some of the relevant books that he's written. Um, just a lot of, covers a lot of interesting things. But it goes into the Rwandan Great Genocide, the Khmer Rouge of Cambodia. Like some of these things have to be like talked about. They're really incredible. The Cambodian thing. Maybe I'll read that today too. I don't know. But that, that's really something else. All the rules that they tried to apply to everybody. They literally tried to create a new rural system and emptied the cities. Like these are really infamous type events. Just murdered, democided a third of the population. Incredible. So this is uh, again. Rudolf Rommel's book, chapter 23, Death by Marxism 2, Stalin's Great Terror. 
The quote is, what is so hard to convey about the feeling of Soviet citizens through 1936 and 1938 is the similar long dried out sweat of fear night after night that the moment of arrest might arrive before the next dawn, just as in the mud holes of Verdun and Ypres. Anyone at all could feel that he might be the next victim. So that's the guy I'm talking about, Robert Conquest. Prelude to the Great Terror. Other governments have murdered many more of their citizens than did the Rwandan Hutu government and the Khmer Rouge, but over a longer period and with, this, with a much larger population. The most murderous of these have also, like the Khmer Rouge, been communist governments, as I've already shown in chapters 13 to 15. Here I will focus on Stalin's democide alone and Mao's in the next chapter in order to further illustrate the shocking consequences of their absolute power on human life. During this period, as I described in chapter 14, Stalin also forced mass starvation upon Ukrainian peasants as a means to defeat their nationalism and opposition to collectivization, thus murdering around 5 million of them with a couple, within a couple of years. It is though the American federal government purposely, purposely starved to death or killed by associated diseases, everyone in Maryland, Minnesota, or Wisconsin. Yet Stalin was not satisf satisfied with this. He also struck at Ukrainian nationalism in other ways, such as directly murdering those who communicated the Ukrainian culture. He ordered shot Ukrainian writers, historians, composers, and even itinerant blind folk singers. The following from the memoirs of composer Dmitry Shostakovich contains its own chilling horror. Quote, Since time immemorial, folk singers have wandered along the roads of the Ukraine, they were always blind and defenseless people, but no one ever touched or hurt them. Hurting a blind man, what could be lower? And then in the mid-30s, the first all-Ukrainian congress of Lerniki and Banderisti folk singers was announced, and all the folk singers had to gather and discuss what to do in the future. Life is better, life is merrier, Stalin had said. The blind men believed it. They came to the congress from all over the Ukraine, from tiny, forgotten villages. There were several hundred of them at the congress, they say. It was a living museum, the country's living history, all its songs, all its music and poetry. And they were almost all shot, almost all those pathetic blind men killed. Why was this done? Here were these blind men walking around singing songs of dubious content. The songs weren't passed by the censors. And what kind of censorship can you have with a blind man? You can't hand a blind man a corrected and approved text and you can't write him an order either. You have to tell everything to a blind man. That takes too long. And you can't file away a piece of paper, and there's no time anyway. Collectivization, mechanization, it was easier to shoot them, and so they did. The Great Terror. As bad as this democide was, the worst was yet to come. By 1934, the peasant war was over, but it left an aftertaste. Some activists and party officials in the field could not quite accept the horrors of the previous years with ideological equanimity shooting children as kulaks, starving to death helpless old women? Was this what Marxism meant? Moreover, many old Bolsheviks in the party who could contrast Bolshevik, Bolshevik ideals with the present still had the old rebellious spirit. Then there were the top contender, contenders for Stalin's power, each with his own followers, each willing to criticize Stalin's policies and argue alternatives. Stalin ruled, but with an, an increasingly shaky party beneath him, and the real possibility of a palace coup. He did not rule securely. This was underlined in January 1934 at the Party Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Most delegates had decided to replace Stalin. 
Some wanted as his replacement, Sergei Kirov, a popular member of the Politburo, head of the Leningrad party, and a Russian, unlike Stalin. Obviously, a major purge was needed, and Stalin was a man of action. He met this early challenge by directly confronting his opponents, in effect launching a coup d'etat against the Communist Party. First, he, he had Kirov assassinated. Then, under the guise of exposing the perpetrators of this abominable deed, he set up special staffs of NKVD in every district executive committee of Leningrad to uncover all those involved in the assassination, which turned out to be almost the whole Leningrad party, of course. The, quote, conspirators, unquote, were shot or sent to labor camps. None could appeal. A quarter of Leningrad, were, Leningrad was purged, cleaned out in 1934-1935. This bloody purge was extended to other major cities and eventually to the whole country. It reached its zenith with Stalin's appointment of a supreme headhunter, Nikolai Yezhov, as chief of the NKVD in 1936. Immediately justifying Stalin's faith in him, Yezhov inaugurated his reign by having all of the NKVD people's commissars in the Union Republics, and usually their deputies as well, shot. And no NKVD officer who had served under the former head, Yogoda, Yagoda, was safe either. In 1937 alone, 3,000 were shot. As the murderous purge embraced one party bureau, then another, one government agency, then another, and one social institution, and then another, its nature, extent, and scope began to defy reason and belief. Yet we can see a rationale in it. Stalin may have wanted to go beyond simply exterminating the opposition and create a new party in abject fear of him, one that would work in lockstep to achieve his utopia. Now consider these aspects of what came to be called the Great Terror and see if this is not the only way in which they can be understood. Throughout the vast country, top and middle echelons of the party and government were executed or sent to camps to die. Their replacements, and sometimes even their replacements again, also were subsequently murdered or sent to labor camps. In 1938 in Tbilisi, quote, the chairman of the city executive committee, his first deputy, department chiefs, their assistants, all the chief accountants, all the chief economists were arrested. New ones were appointed in their places. Two months passed and the arrests began again. The chairman, the deputy, all 11 department chiefs, all the chief accountants, all the chief economists. The only people left at liberty were ordinary accountants, stenographers, charwomen, and messengers, unquote. Many old Bolsheviks and other top communists were given show trials during which they confessed to spying, counter-revolutionary plotting, or other crimes. They were sentenced to death. In August 1936, after a dramatic public trial, 16 top party leaders, including Lev Kamemev, Ivan Smirnov, and Grigory Zinoviev, were executed as Trotskyites. In January 1937, another public trial of 17 more top communists, including Karl Radek, was held. All but four were later executed. In March of 1938, more top party members, among them Nikolai Bukharin, Alexei Rykov, and Genrik Yagoda, were tried and executed. Many Westerners, including the American ambassador, were completely duped by these trials. They thought them legitimate, and these top party men guilty. They could not believe that all the confessions of these high officials were false, but they were, as the Soviets in later decades admitted. The chief of Soviet military intelligence was also shot. Military intelligence agents serving abroad were brought home and shot. Major Soviet officers and diplomats who had played a role in the Spanish, Spanish 
Civil War were shot. The top military echelons of the Red Army and Navy were shot. Marshal M.N. Tukhachevsky, the chief of staff, was shot along with seven high-ranking generals for plotting against the country. The marshal was posthumously ex exonerated in 1956. Overall, about half of those in the Red Army Officer Corps were shot or imprisoned, 35,000 men. These included three of the five marshals, 13 out of 15 commanders, all eight admirables, 220 out of 406 brigade commanders, 75 out of the 80 sitting on the Supreme Military Council, and all military district commanders, and all 11 vice commissars of war. Heroes of the Soviet Union, many were unto their death. There's no evidence that they plotted against Stalin, party, or country, or even tried to use their military forces to save themselves. Not only were the officers, officials, and workers in party or government executed or sent to labor camps, often with an impossible 25-year sentence, but so were their wives, parents, and children, and often associates and friends. It was assumed that all those arrested and interrogated had to be part of a plot or a conspiracy. NKVD interrogators labored over each prisoner. Interrogators themselves could and were arrested for wrecking if they seemed insufficiently dedicated to uncover names and dates often supplied by the interrogators themselves. But this was a vicious cycle. A prisoner was forced to confess to at least two conspirators and in turn were arrested and each confessed to at least two more and in turn came more new names. It was a mathematical certainty that the NKVD would eventually interrogate every adult in the Soviet Union except for themselves and Stalin. The countrywide scope of these arrests, the sheer mass of those raked in is unimaginable. Even race and ethnicity were bases, bases for arrest. Greeks were arrested throughout the nation in 1937. Chinese were arrested and blocked. National minorities in Russian towns were all but eliminated. All Koreans from the Far East were arrested. All those in Leningrad with Estonian family names were arrested. All Latvian riflemen and Czechists were arrested. Sometimes the NKVD would murder people on no pretext at all, simply to meet a quota. This is so incredible to a person born and raised in freedom that I will repeat it. The communist government, really the communist party, which was the de facto government, would set up a quota for the number of people its lower officials had to murder. How could this be? Top communists believed that a certain percentage of the population opposed the communist party and therefore had to be eliminated. But in typical communist fashion, it was not something that could be left to the discretion of a low-level cadre. After all, to ensure that lower-level lower level cadres were correctly guided in their work, the party had to put a production quota on iron, steel, pigs, wheat, and virtually everything else of an economic nature. It followed that officials should also be given quotas of people to murder. Furthermore, it was consistent with the communist idea of central planning and control. From Moscow NKVD headquarters, the order would go out to officials with a communist cadre in a village or town to kill so many enemies of the people, and soon enough, the NKVD would receive word that it had been done. That such orders would be given is incredible enough, but that the local official would obey them is also unbelievable. Vladimir and Evdokia Petrov, in their book appropriately titled Empire of Fear, questioned why quite ordinary, decent human beings with a normal hatred of injustice and cruelty would carry out these merciless purges and executions. The answer was simple, sweating, trembling, fear. They related what a friend they called M said of his experience as an NKVD official in a country town in the Novo Sibirsk region. Quote, 
The number of victims demanded by Moscow from this town was 500. M went through the, all the local dossiers and found nothing but trivial offenses recorded. But Moscow's requirements were implacable. He was driven to desperate measures. He listed priests and their relatives. He put down anyone who was reported to have spoken critically about conditions in the Soviet Union. He included all former members of Admirable, Admiral Kolchak's White Army, an anti-communist force in the Civil War of 1918-1922. Even though the Soviet government had decreed that it was not an offense to have served in Kolchak's army, since its personnel had been forcibly conscripted, it was more than M's life was worth not to fulfill his quota. He made up his list of 500 enemies of the people and had them quickly charged and executed and reported to Moscow. Task accomplished in accordance with your instructions. M detested what he had to do. He was by nature a decent, honest, kindly man. He told me the story with savage resentment. Years afterwards, its horror and injustice lay heavy on his conscience. But M did what he was ordered. Apart from a man's ordinary desire to remain alive, M had a mother, a father, a wife, and two children. Indeed, the whole country came under an arrest quota. Orders were issued to arrest a certain percentage of the entire population. How many were arrested? About 8 million people just between the middle of 1936 and the end of 1938. Possibly as many as 14 million people were under NKVD detention, or about 9% of the population. These were not all party members or officials. Most were simple peasants and workers. They had nothing to do with the party or Stalin's power over the party and thus the country. They had done nothing wrong, yet they were arrested by the millions. Why? Only one answer is plausible. There was a growing labor shortage, and needing more forced laborers for its enterprises, the NKVD had developed a quota system to arrest and collect its slaves. This becomes even more plausible when those whose camp terms were expiring. Those who, against the odds, had managed to survive the deadly camp conditions were given another 10, 15, or 25-year sentence. This, without interrogation or hearing, for nothing the prisoner had done, was disclosed to the prisoners as they stood in brigades, called up to the administration building for the purpose, and for which they were even made to sign their names. Millions and millions of arrests during 1937 and 1938 got out of hand. Interrogators were swamped, prison cells were stuffed with new arrivals, and the system was breaking down by the end of 1938. In some places, faced with finding space for the daily crowd of newly arrested, Officials had holes dug in the ground, a roof put over the top, and prisoners herded in. Small prisons teamed with thousands. A prison in Kharkov, built for around 800, held about 12,000 prisoners. Not at all unusual, Butryka prison in Moscow had 140 men squeezed into a cell for 24. The Great Terror had to end. His purpose accomplished. Stalin purged Yezhov, the top purger himself and replaced him with Lavrenti Baria. Yezhov was given a token position and soon disappeared. Then, arguing that NKVD fascists had been responsible for the terror, and like Yezhov before him, Baria had nearly all senior officers of the NKVD executed and sent most of the others to camps. Many camp inmates briefly enjoyed seeing their former interrogators and torturers joining them. As told by a former official in the secretariat of the Politburo, Baria had his own methods. Quote, he invited the ministers, ministers of the interior of all the republics and all the higher Cheka officials who had especially distinguished themselves during the purges to a conference in Moscow. Having been asked to leave their weapons in the cloakroom, they were received in the banqueting hall with lavish hospitality. Everybody was in excellent spirits, 
when Berea appeared. Instead of the expected address, he uttered just one sentence. You are under arrest. They were led from the hall and shot in the cellar the same night. Executions during the Great Terror were not limited to those purged. There still was an absolute requirement to liquidate enemies of the people, party members with insufficient revolutionary consciousness, independent thinkers, and the like. Of those arrested, the number executed cannot be known confidently. While the Great Terror focused on the party, it still fell hardest on peasants, workers, intellectuals, and, and the religious. Evidence of this terror was uncovered during the 1943 Nazi occupation of the Ukraine. In Vinitsa, a mass grave was discovered that contained over 9,000 bodies, more than 13% of Vinitsa's pre-war population. The Nazis invited an international commission of medical experts to examine the bodies. Almost all were found to have been shot in the back of the neck, all apparently in 1938. A number of those murdered had been sentenced to forced labor without the right of correspondence, apparently normal, an apparently normal deception. The result of the Great Terror was a whole new Communist Party. Of 139 candidates and members of the party's Central Committee, 98 were shot. Only 59 of 1,966 delegates to the Party Congress in 1934 were alive to attend the Congress in 1939. In total, the purge eliminated 850,000 members from the party, or 36%. Throughout the country, extravagant, extravagant adulation of Stalin became common, while the population learned silence and obedience, fear, and submission. It was a revolution not in structure, but in personnel. Virtually all the old guard and party faithful who lived through the Bolshevik Revolution were murdered. Stalin had liquidated the old party. The new party was totally terrorized into obeying his slightest whim or command. Stalin's power was absolute. He needed, no, he needed to obey no laws, no customs, no tradition. He feared no man under him. With no competing vision, he was free to achieve his own version of utopia, unhindered by any norms, traditions, or ethics. How many were killed overall during this terror? The probable one million people executed does not cover camp and transit deaths. In 1936, the camp population was largely generated by the collectivization campaign. When these death, camp deaths are included, along with an estimated 65,000 dying from deportation, and with the number shot, the total murder in the Great Terror years is probably 4.345 million. 4,345,000, or this, this is a prudent estimate. The democide could be as high as 10 million or as low as 2 million. Even this very conservative absolute low is not to be taken lightly. If it alone were the only estimate for democide in the Soviet Union in this century, it would still be terribly significant. It is over twice the number of Armenians the Turks probably murdered during World War I. It likely exceeds the number of Cambodians killed by the Khmer Rouge during their brief reign. Is over twice Japan's battle dead in all of World War II, almost twice the overall battle dead in, in the Vietnam War, and much greater than the total battle dead in the Korean War. Yet this low is probably too low by over 2 million lives. And even the more likely figure of 4,345,000 is less than one-third the probable democide of the previous collectivization period. So he also references... Uh, of some books, Empire of Fears, one that he talked about, also Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. So those are both kind of referencing that. But those are just kind of an example of the work of Rudolf Rommel. There's a lot there to go through. I could probably read different parts of that book, but uh, did a lot of book, and it just shows kind of the background that sad truth is that democide exists and millions and millions of people died. 
hundreds of millions of people. And, and uh, you can see that kind of uh, nightmarish approach here in the United States. Like they killed a lot of people with those shots. They don't care. They're moving forward. So that kind of death agenda is definitely alive and well. Thank you for listening.